You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eleelah, Sebam, Nebo, and Beon, the land that Yahweh struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that Yahweh has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that Yahweh had given them. And Yahweh's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore saying, Surely none of the men who came out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed Yahweh. And Yahweh's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of Yahweh was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of Yahweh against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place, and our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance." For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before Yahweh for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before Yahweh until he has driven out his enemies from before him and the land is subdued before Yahweh, Then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to Yahweh and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before Yahweh. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against Yahweh, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep, 
and do what you have promised. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will pass over every man who is armed for war before Yahweh to battle, as my Lord orders. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who is armed to battle before Yahweh, will pass with you over the Jordan and the land shall be subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. However, if they will not pass over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, What Yahweh has said to your servants, we will do. We will pass over armed before Yahweh into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan. And Moses gave to them, to the people of Gad, and to the people of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land and its cities with their territories, the cities of the land throughout the country, and the people of Gad built Dibon, Adaroth, Aror, Atroth Shophan, Jazer, Jogbeha, Beth Nimrah, and Beth Haran, fortified cities, and folds for sheep. And the people of Reuben built Heshbon, Eleelah, Kiriathim, Nebo, and Baalmeon. Their names were changed. And Sibma. And they gave other names to the cities that they built. And the sons of Makir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and captured it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. And Moses gave Gilead to Makir, the son of Manasseh, and he settled in it. And Jer, the son of Manasseh, went and captured their villages and called them Havoth Jer. And Nobah went and captured Kenath and its villages and called it Nobah after his own name. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 644 of this podcast. Today is, or rather I should say tonight is, Saturday, June 24th, 2023. Just so happens that I am not sleeping. <laughs> I tried. I tried laying down for the night. I am not sleeping. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and get up and record a podcast episode. What the heck? Why not? Maybe that's why I'm not sleeping, because I haven't podcasted for a few days, and I was hoping to. I was hoping to podcast this morning, and it just didn't work out. I woke up first thing, and I had some leftover programming work from the day before, the day before yesterday, that was pressing, and I needed to do some cleanup on it, and that required 
me delving in and troubleshooting and trying some things remote. And then I got a call and that lasted about 40 minutes. And then by that time I thought, you know what, my family's up and now the house is busy and I should really actually get out to the field because I can't do this thing remote. Long story short, get through my routine out of whack. And actually, let me just take a moment before we talk about what's in Numbers 32 that I just read for you. Let me take a moment to talk about the change in work scope, which has affected the rhythm of my podcasting. And I said this actually when I very first changed jobs, when I took this job as a controls programmer and I stopped doing the systems integration thing, the SCADA work that I was doing previously, I said at the time with the change in schedule and the change in work scope, I probably would be podcasting differently. I wouldn't be on the same rhythm that I had been on previously. And that has proven to be the case. That certainly has proven true, not just affecting how often, how frequently I podcast, but actually the length of podcast episodes. I would say I'm podcasting less often than I was previously. And my podcast episodes are longer because I still have things that I want to say. I have something of a pent up desire to communicate, but then I'm also writing less. And I think part of that is because I am talking less to people in my current role. I do talk with people throughout the day, but it's mostly, honestly, me jumping on conference calls. And then I'm listening. I'm listening quite a lot. And then I'm supposed to be taking notes. And then occasionally, every now and then, I get a question headed my way and I have to be ready. So I have to be listening quite a lot and I have to be ready with an answer or at least I have to be ready with a note of, oh yeah, I'll check on that and I'll get back with you. Previously, my previous role, I was answering the phone most days throughout the day and then interspersed with my getting calls from the field at Chevron, interspersed with my getting emails and Teams messages with various requests, interspersed with me having just regular projects where I would be working hand in hand with other members of the systems team, I would have some typing or I would have downtime. And I was just basically on call. And so I could get writing in. And that allowed me to rest my vocal cords a little bit from talking on the phone with people. And the writing thing actually was more of a balance. And now, because I spend so much time sitting at the mouse and keyboard, and I'm not actually having a lot of verbal interaction, not quite a lot of interpersonal interactions like I was before, I find that podcasting is more of a balance and that I don't have as much energy or time to sit and write like I was. And so I haven't been making progress on my book, and this is why we got married. I haven't been writing my WordPress posts quite as often. Uh, actually, I haven't for some time now. It's been several weeks, really, a few months, as a matter of fact. But I find that when I'm not podcasting for several days, when I have this conviction that I should be doing this thing, there are people listening, there are people that are benefiting from this, 
even if they're not listening to every single episode, they are listening and they are engaging with the material and they're thinking about what I'm bringing to their attention here, what I'm bringing to your attention. I shouldn't say there because you're listening to this podcast right now. So it's you, right? It's you that is listening. But I find that when I go several days without podcasting, because that is a conviction that I have that this is a thing I should be doing, this is something of my devotion to God, that at this time, at this juncture, I'm able to do it and I ought to do it. When I go several days without doing it, I get to feeling like I am neglecting what I ought to be doing. The good that I ought to be doing, I am not doing. Well, that brings us back again to talking about Numbers 32 and this passage concerning two tribes of Israel, Reuben and Gad, coming up with a proposal which initially is not well received. Their initial proposal is, let us settle in this land. We'll take this land. We have a lot of livestock. This land is really good for livestock, and it just so happens we have a lot of livestock. Your servants have livestock. Go figure, lo and behold. And the response from Moses is very stern. And it is not even-handed initially. It's not giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's not, oh yeah, you know, I could see how that would make sense. The response from Moses right from the jump is, what are you doing? Don't you remember? Don't you remember what got your fathers in trouble? What got your fathers in trouble is that they were putting their own material comforts, their own economic concerns, their own desire for an untroubled life ahead of obeying God. And so God caused them to wander in the wilderness. Don't you remember that? Don't you know that? What are you doing? You're going to cause this whole people to be destroyed because you're going to stir the whole people up, just like those spies who came back with a bad report after spying out the land. And so Moses is on it, right? He remembers. He has this very much in view immediately. And then as Reuben and Gad talk about what it is that they have in mind, well, no, 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 we'll settle our wives and our children and our livestock here, and then we will go with you. We will go with this people, you, the rest of the tribes of Israel, we will go with you into battle. Just let us get our families squared away, and then we will go with you, and we won't rest. We won't return to our homes until we have helped you to get possession of your land. And when Moses hears that, he relents. He says, all right, if you will do this thing, if you will do what you're promising to do, then so be it. And if you don't, well, then your sins will find you out. God will know and God will deal with you. And what is that a reminder of? It's a reminder that God has already told Moses he is not going to be going into the promised land. He is not going to be seeing this promised land himself in the way that Joshua, who is taking up the mantle of leadership, is going to. And so in some sense, this is a note that it's in Moses' mind that God is going to have to be the guarantor of their promise. He is going to have to keep them to their promise. And 
Even though Moses isn't going to be there, he's here now. And so he's telling Reuben and Gad, you need to know, be warned if you don't keep your promise in this, God will deal with you. If you don't do what you've promised, your sins will find you out because it will have been a sin. If you abandon your responsibility to the rest of your brothers in the household of Israel, if you abandon more to the point, more importantly, your responsibility to God, God will deal with that. And that's satisfactory to Reuben and Gad. They're content with that. And I just find this very interesting. I find it very interesting that for one thing, we have these details, we have these features talked about in the Old Testament, not as a distraction from more important spiritual matters, but actually as a outlet for the spiritual reality, the condition of the hearts and the minds of these people is expressed in how they're relating to their responsibilities or their opportunities or the dangers or the threats or the challenges. The condition of their hearts and minds is not important and then the economic reality is unimportant, but rather the economic reality, the economic opportunity is important as a conduit for expressing their relationship towards God, either belief or unbelief, either faithfulness or unfaithfulness or faithlessness, either contentment and thankfulness and gratitude or grumbling and murmuring and rebellion. And so you have here this mention of livestock. These two tribes have livestock. And the place was a place for livestock. And so we see that not all places are places for livestock. And we see also, it would seem, that some tribes have more livestock than others. And you know what? If the tribes that have more livestock than others want to be in the places that are better suited for livestock, well, that makes a lot of sense. It's very intuitively fitting. But the very spiritually minded person The very concerned with our heart condition and where our minds are at person, if they go too far and they denigrate the importance of practicality, are they actually being so spiritual? If God ordains for this to be in the scriptures, then isn't that a sign that these things are important to God? For that matter, if God created these things, did he create them only so that we could ignore them and neglect them and avoid them and not talk about them and not pay attention to them? Or did he create these things, these economic concerns, as a way of our demonstrating or living out or realizing his goodness or his promises or what it means to obey him or to serve him? Are these things not a means to the end of obeying God? And the simple answer is yes, if we are relating properly to God. And so to some extent, the people who are very quick to spiritualize, they're right, but if we never proceed from calibrating our hearts and our minds to engaging with the practical reality, what is that? 
have we actually calibrated our hearts and our minds in so spiritual a way? And oh, by the way, what is the chiding not characterized by? When Moses corrects, scolds, warns Reuben and Gad, what is it about? It's not, oh, you guys, you're so earthly and carnal and you're only concerned about what doesn't matter at all. Rather, you should be only concerned about what is spiritual, what is immaterial. That's all that matters. No, no, there's something of a prioritization that is satisfactory and which we get something of a clue would have been satisfactory before. It's not as though being concerned about where your wives and your children and your livestock are going to reside. It's not as though that shouldn't be a consideration at all. It's not as though it's unimportant or as though the ideal is for you to regard it as totally unimportant and totally inconsequential. But the order of operations, the prioritization is very important. Think back to when Abraham and Lot are traveling together and there are so many servants and there are so many animals that belong to the two of them that there's quarreling and the land is not big enough to contain both Abraham and Lot's servants and livestock. And so they agree to separate. In the interest of maintaining the peace, they agree to go separate directions. Abraham gives to Lot the first choice. And actually, as it turns out, Lot choosing the land that looks a lot more productive, a lot more economically promising, is not actually the better choice. And why is that? Quite simply, that is because that land is filled with wickedness. That land is ultimately going to take everything from Lot. That land is something of a trap. And that isn't to say that Lot is not righteous, but it is to say his thinking, as it seems, first and only about the economic opportunity gets him into trouble. And Abraham, meanwhile, it seems, is blessed in prioritizing something else, something more important. And it's not as though Abraham is even poorer. Lot loses everything, but Abraham loses even more than everything. No, no. Actually, Abraham ends up being much more prosperous than Lot in something of a counterintuitive way, given what you would expect based on the characterization of the land that Lot chooses and the land that is left to Abraham. You would expect that maybe, just maybe, Lot would work out to be wealthier, but then we would find out, well, at least Abraham had his relationship with God. Oh, that's good, right? The way a lot of Christians carry on, you would think that is what's coming. As a matter of fact, something more closely resembling Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, is what we find. Actually, it's very similar as well to Solomon being offered the chance to ask for anything that he would of God, asking for wisdom to be able to lead this people, to lead them well, 
that pleasing God so much that God says, you could have asked for long life or riches or peace, but because you have asked for this thing that is better, you've asked for this better thing, I will give to you all the rest as well. Something very similar to that happens with Abraham and we see it echoed in what Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Now in this case too, you have Reuben and Gad in perhaps possibly a similar kind of a problem, or at least there's the potential for that similar kind of a problem where they're going to prioritize first and foremost claiming this land. And then, oh, our work is done. We got what we wanted. But the satisfaction is we're going to settle our families. We're going to make sure they're established. We're going to get all of our ducks in a row in the land. And then we will go with the rest of the household of Israel before we settle. And actually, there's something very honorable about that. There's something very fitting about that, possibly, potentially, along the lines of the qualifications for overseers and deacons. What are some of the chief items Paul writes to Timothy and Titus? Must be able to manage his household well. Why is that important? If he's able to manage his own household, if he's able to manage his own household well, he will also probably, predictably, be able to manage the church well. If he's not able to manage his own household well, well, then why would you entrust him with an even weightier responsibility? Why would you do that? That's not going to be good for anybody. It's not going to be good for him. It's not going to be good for his family or his household if he has servants He has extended family, but his wife and his kids, it's not going to be good for them. It's not going to be good for the church. If he does not manage his own household well, why would you entrust more to him? That's the opposite of the moral of the story for the parable of the talents. The servant who buries his talents in a field is not given more. Oh, well, you know, maybe you just didn't have enough. Well, if I would have just given you as much as I gave the other servants, the master says, then you would have invested, but you just, you didn't have enough from the beginning. And that was actually my fault. No, that's not what the master says. The master says, you wicked servant, and takes even what little had been initially entrusted and gives that amount to the servant that is going to invest and turn a profit as he was commanded to. And even there, what is God doing in that story? He's investing material wealth in his servants. The master in the parable of the talents is God. Those servants are you and I being given material wealth, material blessings. And if we invest them well and we make a profit, good. If we do so because we honor the Lord, we love the Lord, we do so in an honest way as stewards, never forgetting that we are stewards of what God has entrusted to us, good. But if we bury our talents in a field, if we say, oh, I'm not going to invest because then, you know, that would be exposure to risk. We should expect that the master is not exactly going to high five us when we have that follow-up conversation to talk about returns on investment. There aren't any returns on investment if you go bury your talents in a field. If you go bury what the Lord has entrusted to you in a field and you don't put it to work, But let's do talk about something contemporary. Let's talk about real world, present day, what's in the news, and 
maybe we can ground in our current context some of what we're discussing in generalities and what can feel very far removed in Numbers 32. Joseph Curl over at the Daily Wire published a piece, an opinion piece, on June 21st, Gen Z are worst tippers, baby boomers, best, new survey finds. And some of the statistics here are interesting. Uh, First, only 24% of Gen Z ages 18 to 26, 40% of millennials ages 27 to 42, and 67% of Gen X ages 43 to 58 always tip their hairdresser, hairstylist, or barber in comparison to the boomers. Baby boomers, 59 to 77, tip when they go into a sit-down restaurant 83% of the time. Gen Z, by by comparison, by comparison with the baby boomers, Gen Z is at 35%, always, according to some polling from Bankrate. When It comes to food delivery, 31% of Gen Z will tip, 62% of the baby boomers. When it comes to taxis, ride shares, Uber, Lyft, that kind of thing, Gen Z falls to 22%, baby boomers are at 56%. Now, what's interesting is that tipped workers receive a federal minimum wage of $2.13 per hour, According to the U.S. Department of Labor, thus, we all have to pay them in order to make up for the money their employers don't pay them. Did you know that? Now, let me just ask a question, actually, as a follow-on. Should these workers be getting paid based on tips if the rates otherwise are as high as they are? So, for instance, if I am ordering food from a pizza joint, do I know whether that pizza delivery guy is getting paid in tips, primarily, largely? Do I know that? Or am I thinking, well, this pizza delivery guy is probably making money otherwise? How many of the things that we now pay for give the option for tipping? It seems like a growing number of things offer the option to tip. And that begs the question of whether employers should be paying their employees primarily in tips or not. That begs the question. If the younger generations, Gen Z and millennials and Gen X, tip less than the boomers, maybe that's going to have to get renegotiated. Maybe that's going to have to be reconsidered. But also, too, can I just throw out there that these stats, these percentages, indicate something else. Something else besides generosity or stinginess. These statistics also may be revealing a disparity with regards to cost of living. And what I mean by that is, what are the percentage numbers for owning one's own home versus renting for each of these generations? Do Gen Zers own their own home at the same rate as millennials or Gen X 
or the baby boomers. And you would say, well, of course, you know, the older you are, the more likely you are to have saved up and bought a house. But even if you're comparing milestone markers and the age at which those milestones are reached for young people today, you know, 20 somethings and 30 somethings today, compared with previous generations of Americans when they were in their 20s or 30s, what percentage of Gen Z and millennials own their first home at 20 or 30 years old compared with the baby boomers when they were 20 or 30 years old or the GI generation when they were 20 or 30 years old? What percentage of young people today own their own home instead of renting? For that matter too, as I've shared on this podcast in recent episodes, the average percentage of income that is paid to rent in the United States of America is 45%. That's the average. So then, and I don't have these stats handy, but then that begs the question, what percentage of income is typical to be paid out in a mortgage payment? If you buy a home, but you've borrowed money, you've got a mortgage, what percentage of your income is on average, if you're an American, going to paying the mortgage on your house. For that matter too, if you've paid off the mortgage, but that mortgage was initially a smaller percentage relative to your annual income, if you paid off your mortgage, well then what is your disposable income ratio? Compared with paying for a taxi, compared with ordering a pizza, compared with going into a restaurant, compared with going to get your hair cut, these are very relevant to the question of which generations are tipping and which ones aren't. These are very relevant. Part of why I bring this up in relation to Numbers 32 is you have this idea of Reuben and Gad saying, hey, this land is really good for livestock, it looks like. This would be really well suited. And hey, you know, it just so happens we have livestock. We'll take this land. And the concern that is raised by Moses is reasonable. It's a reasonable concern. Well, you guys are going to get yours and then you're going to leave the rest of the tribes to figure it out on their own. You're going to leave them to fend for themselves, whatever happens to them. Moving on, that's their business. Once you're content that you got yours, well, then what? And you might say, well, okay, yeah, but we all have to paddle our own canoe. And that's true to some extent. But then again, if the whole of the nation of Israel was working together to get humanly speaking, this land that Reuben and Gad now are saying is up for grabs and they would like it. As you keep on going along, if everybody is not contributing to the same extent, well, the last tribe to find a home is going to have the toughest time of it when it comes to making war and fighting to gain possession or to win a victory over this people that is being driven out of that land by God. If it's a attrition, slowly but surely, as each of the previous tribes take their possession, well, then also, too, you're going to have a lot of fighting and scrambling like a game of musical chairs to make sure your tribe is not the last without a chair to sit in 
or a land to settle in. And yet, what do Reuben and Gad not do? They don't object. They don't complain and argue and say, well, no, it's not fair. You know, we, we fought. We did our part. We've put in enough time. We're ready to settle down. No, no. They say, no, it's entirely reasonable for you to have the concern that you do. Let us just get our wives and our children settled, and then we'll continue on. We will keep on with you. We will go before you to fight and to win the rest of the possession for these other tribes. And that's satisfactory. In relation to generations, it's a little bit tricky to find a one-to-one, but I think there are some things, there are some general principles that translate. For instance, if an older generation enacted policies and voted for certain people or allowed certain people to be voted in, and they engaged in certain patterns which have caused difficulty, hardship for younger generations that come up after those older generations, and the older generations are all settled, and then they say, ah, yes, but we worked really hard. You guys just don't know how to work hard. You should just, you, you should just work harder, and you will also own your own home. Well, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. How much of the policymaking is set and established by these younger generations? How much of this has actually been set and decided quite a long time ago? Gradually, over decades, when we were children, actually, and didn't have any decisions to make in this mix. What if it turned out that some of the decisions that have been made as far as policy, or the way that the economy has been steered to this point, or the way society has been shepherded to this point, what if some of that has been coming from the same place that, I don't know, high divorce rates came from, or abortion statistics came from? What if, maybe just maybe, it would be entirely consistent for generations that got divorced at a high percentage, and aborted a lot of their children, also weren't always quite so selfless towards future generations and the impact that their decisions would have on future generations. What if it just turned out that maybe some of this is the younger generations inheriting a mess and then it being flipped that, you know, actually this is all your guys' fault. Whoa, 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 we just got here. Right? And I've seen this, right? I've seen this play out in the microcosm in work situations. I won't name names, but I have stepped into roles before. And actually, I have a particular employer <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, a few back where I came in and there were so many things that had just been cobbled together, MacGyvered, duct taped almost practically in some cases that were just limping along and that had been that way for a long time. They were supposed to be temporary fixes and then one temporary fix on another, on another, on another. And before you know it, the whole thing is just falling apart. And you step into that role. If you step into that role like I did, where you're supposed to now be the guy who maintains it, and then you have people trying to act all nonplussed, like, hey, why haven't you fixed this yet? You're like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. This is negligence years and years and years in the making. I've been here for a couple of weeks. Don't, 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 don't. Don't pin this on me. But people will. 
right? Selfish people will look for, they will starve you of support so that they can have a scapegoat, especially if it has been their fault to this point. And if you don't know any better, if you let them, they will railroad you and they will pin it all on you. And next thing you know, you're the one having to justify why this has all been the way that it is. And it can be a tricky spot because if while they're still firmly entrenched, you start pointing out, well, hey, listen, this and this and this and this and this, you guys did before I ever got here. It was like this when I found it. You guys did this, 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 and I've got to document it all. And now I've got to write a report. And if you're going to ask, okay, I'm going to tell you exactly what I found and what it would take to fix it right. And then you get to make the decision even now, probably, whether I fix this right or leave it the way you MacGyvered it. Or maybe I'll just move on. I'll move on to somewhere else where they have more of a functional way of relating to these kinds of things. Or I'm actually maintaining it. I'm not rebuilding it. But you scale that up, scale that up to whole generations. And it does have an effect. And it can absolutely express itself in statistics. And you have... You have to be careful with statistics because they can be used in deceptive, manipulative ways. Like, for instance, you could have baby boomers sponsoring a study that is going to reflect very well on them and cast them in a very positive light. But there's a lot of interpreting that has to be done here. And sometimes polls are faulty from the jump in the kinds of questions that are asked and what questions aren't asked. You're not going to measure what you're not looking for and you're not asking, for instance. But then also even just conclusions that you come to. If the people sponsoring the studies are hoping to pat themselves on the back and assert a kind of dominance over younger generations, and they're trying to forestall the realization of just how badly their selfish choices have set us up, as younger generations, well, I hate to say it, but it wouldn't be surprising to me at all, at all, at all, to find that a lot of this scoffing and mocking and making fun and deriding younger generations like the millennials and Gen Z isn't coming from a place of fear. You know, if we don't put the pressure on them, if we don't poke fun at them, as soon as they figure out how badly our economic policies and our social policies, our personal choices scaled up, have set them up, ooh, we're going to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations, a lot of uncomfortable explaining to do. And believe you me, that day is coming, but it can come here in honesty. It can come to us in a proactive way. I mean, look at everything that's gone before to this point as sunk cost, but moving forward, hey, how do we fix this? What's the backstory? Or it can come as a shock. I think the longer there is a denial and a scapegoating and a desire to avoid admitting that the baby boomers made some very, very bad choices, the longer that is kept up, that we're pretending this is a problem with the younger generations first and foremost, all the while neglecting to mention 
who raised the younger generations here, who was responsible to see to our education. The longer we maintain the illusion, the higher the cost gets. And what I'm prescribing here, what I would advise is not that our younger generations in the U.S. here give in to bitterness and resentment. No, we should put away all bitterness and wrath. Never avenge yourselves, beloved. Leave it to the wrath of God. But what we should do is we should act like adults, and we should open up some history books and look back in time at what our grandparents and great-grandparents' generations acted like and talked like and thought like by the time they were our age. Are we perhaps just possibly being conditioned to think of ourselves as still kids, older and older in life, to forestall our wanting to take a look at the books ourselves? Is that a possibility? I would say that's a strong possibility. But again, going back to Numbers 32, it's very reasonable, very, very reasonable to say both I need to attend to where my wife and my children are going to live, where my livestock is going to graze, and also we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord first after we've established our wife and children and livestock concerns in this land. We're going to serve the Lord first. It's very reasonable. It's very, very reasonable in our context to say not instead of, but as part of our expression of devotion to God. As Christians, we're going to attend to the basic economic conditions and how those are going to either facilitate our providing for our families, our own households, men in particular, the members of our extended family, men in particular. We're going to attend to that and take it seriously not instead of, but as a part of, as a, of a peace with our serving the Lord. These things are not mutually exclusive. They're not opposites. They should harmonize very neatly, very nicely. They should go together. The fact that so often we don't think that they do, we don't think that they should, we don't think that they will, may be of a peace with young people being regarded as adolescence perpetually until later and later in life. Young people not having been, in so many cases, set up for adulting, being kept perpetually adolescent, not being encouraged to cultivate this sense of ownership over their own circumstances, their own choices, their own more holistic well-being. Well, you know what? That could that could be the other side of the coin for something of a predatory mindset on the part of the older generations. The more keen we are, the more perceptive, wise, assertive we are, the more difficult it will be to bully us or take advantage of us, to defraud us. But again, again, you can be aware that that is a very real concern and also resist the temptation to be bitter or envious or resentful or wrathful, and you should. We should. We must. 
In other news, let's talk about an article by Naveen Athrapuli over at the Epoch Times. EV range dips nearly 25% while carrying load, according to AAA. The American Automobile Association has done a study on Ford's EV pickup truck, the F-150 Lightning, and in an unloaded state, the 2022 model had a driving range of 278 miles. That's not bad, right? It's not quite what my gasoline internal combustion engine F-150 gets on a full tank, but it's not bad, 278 miles. However, if you put on a payload of 1,400 pounds, the driving range drops to 210 miles. That's a decline of 68 miles or 24.5% from the unloaded range. That is about the equivalent of hauling 20 bags of concrete mix. Now, follow me as I think through this for a moment, if you would. If we have major states like California and a significant portion of the rest of the United States following suit, whatever California does, they just automatically adopt those standards. If you have California deciding that it will not be legal to sell an internal combustion engine vehicle in the state of California here in not so many years, I believe it was by the year 2030, maybe it was 2035, either way, not that far, not that long into the future, if they have declared that their intention, what happens, friends, what happens if all you can get are electric vehicles, what happens if you want to live in rural Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Colorado? What happens if you want to live out in the country and you want to farm or you want to go hunting or you want to go camping? What happens to your ability to actually do so and to take things with you and to get work done in a meaningful way? What happens if the infrastructure is not there? What happens if these vehicles don't actually allow you to get from point A to point B when there's really bad weather? And I'm talking a blizzard. I'm talking tornadoes. I'm talking flooding. What happens when you've got to go way out of your typical path of travel because there's a detour, but then you just run out? You run out of juice in the battery, and now you're just stuck out there in the middle of nowhere where there is no cell service. What happens to the people who aspire to that as their life? Young people who are talked into, brainwashed into, I would say, in the American public schools, and thanks to the corporate news media, brainwashed into believing they have to go electric, all electric, ASAP, ASAP, as soon as possible. What happens to those young people when they start thinking they would like to live out in the country, but they can't get a vehicle that is reliable. Well, maybe one, this is a way of coercing them towards the cities. We want you guys to be more urban. We want you to move closer together, closer together, move up and move in. Come on, pack it in guys. Don't spread out. No, we don't want you to have your own space. No, 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 no. That's selfish, right? That's selfish. It's harder to control you. It's harder to monitor you when you're all spread out. Hmm, interesting, huh? 
Now, you could say, well, Garrett, in 10 years, the carrying capacity of these electric vehicles is going to be, it's going to be so much more, so, so much more. And I say, well, you know what? How about this? Here's an idea. Here's a wild idea. How about we start with the premise that the government's job is not to force you to buy electric vehicles because the lawmakers have already invested heavily in the companies that are going to see a huge uptick in their stock price when everything has to go electric. How about you not force the young people to lose out economically, socially, personally, in settling the land, filling up the land? How about you not handicap the younger generation by telling them they can't buy an internal combustion engine vehicle? Uh, The whole global warming thing, it's a farce, by the way. It's a farce. Check out The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels by Alex Epstein. He's also got another one, which I believe is either just about to be released or has just been released, Fossil Future, which I would like to read soon. But check out The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels and realize the hysteria, the hype about carbon footprints and burning fossil fuels is hollow. It is not scientific. It's a con. It's a con that is first and foremost being perpetuated at the expense of my generation, and my children's generation, my grandchildren's generation, should the world stand. This is a con. This is a sabotage. This is selfishness and corruption through and through, plain and simple, period. It's immoral. It's fraudulent. It does matter. It's not only important if you are morally perfect and if you have no sin in you, you're as sinless as Jesus Christ himself. It's not only important if you only ever have 100% correct theology according to all of the gatekeepers. It's not only important if you have satisfied the woke folk in terms of your social justice credit score or your ESG score or your DEI score. It's not only important if you've satisfied the BLM folks. This is important as a means to the end of being able to provide for my wife and my children that an electric vehicle pickup truck has 25% less range when actually carrying a load. What does that do if I'm helping some friends of ours to move? What does that do on a busy day where I'm trying to go back and forth for work with equipment? What does that do if we buy a place out in the country, if we can ever afford to buy a place out in the country at this rate with what the Democrats have done, with what the establishment politicians of both parties have done to the economy and to our national reputation? Let's suppose I get a house out in the country for my family like I would love to so that they're established, so that my children and my grandchildren after me are established. What happens if I've got an electric vehicle pickup truck that just plum runs out? And that's it, right? This was the day we had planned to do this thing, but now we can't because it's run out. And oh, by the way, if you have to replace the batteries on this thing, that's going to cost you. And oh, by the way, you're not going to want to get this wet. So if you, you know, are trying to ford a river, watch out. The thing might catch fire and explode. 
you know, that kind of stuff. It's kind of important. It's kind of important to my ability to provide for my family and to be able to forecast. And why do we see my economic opportunity, my children's, my son's, I have seven sons with an eighth on the way in November. Why is it that I am told so often in this country that the most spiritual, the most Christian, the most godly thing I could possibly do when I'm confronted with economic sabotage coming from the ruling class in the U.S. here, coming from the Democratic Party in particular in this country here, coming from the baby boomers generation in particular, and those they handed over to leftists in the public schools and in the colleges and universities and handed over to the popular culture. Why is it that I'm told the most spiritual godly thing I could possibly do when I see all these economic troubles is to just say, trust God. Is it not possible that I could trust God and also take seriously my economic responsibilities or how the economic conditions are going to either help or hinder providing for my family, protecting my family? Wouldn't that also be helpful for me to key in on if the man who doesn't provide for the needs of his own household, especially his own family, is worse than an unbeliever, is worse than an infidel. Isn't that actually, in some sense, where I'm supposed to start? If I see somebody trying to destroy the industry, which I've been working in for a dozen years now, if I see a whole political party trying to destroy the industry that I provide for my family, working in, all the while, left and right, committing various kinds of fraud— to do it more or less openly. If I see that, don't I have to object? Don't I have to say, hey, wait a second, hold on. Hey, that's going to decrease my family's quality of life. That's going to decrease our ability to take care of basic things like, oh, I don't know, medical bills, dental appointments, eye appointments. Don't I have a responsibility to object, actually, if I don't want to be worse than an unbeliever? If there is the appearance of these being matters of public debate, but then as a conservative, you're not supposed to, you're not allowed to, or else you're accused of misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, shouldn't that also be a priority for the Christian? Why is it, why is it that so often we see these economic concerns being complained about, not because these are concerns, but because people are raising the concerns. I hear so often that the United States is this wealthy country, and we have it so good, right? We have, it, we have first world problems and all the rest. And who is saying that? Is it possible that their sample size is rather limited, and maybe rather than using that as a means of quieting any American who would express concern about the direction of the economy, is it maybe just possible that they should be using some of that surplus wealth to, oh, I don't know, support political candidates who are going to be more conservative, more responsible with public funds, public policy, tax rates, regulations, so that others have the 
ability to work, earn, save, buy. How is it that we hear so much about how prosperous the United States is, and yet the stats for tipping are progressively worse the younger the generation? How is it that we hear so much about how prosperous the United States is and how we should all feel very bad about this? How bad are we that we're so prosperous compared with the rest of the world? But home ownership rates are declining. Young people are waiting until later and later in life to get married. Young people who are married are waiting until later and later in life to have kids, if they have kids at all. How is it that we're supposedly so well off economically or is that actually not quite what it is? Is it possible that some of the people who are giving the money to the people who are doing the talking are very, very well off? And so they get to write the tune and they feel bad, right? They feel bad, but not bad enough to actually want the status quo to be adjusted in such a way that would open up opportunity for others. You know, there's a sense in which conservatives have a rather too short attention span. And we see this, let's say, for instance, on the topic of abortion. Some conservatives or supposed conservatives argued for years that we should just give up on the idea of overturning Roe v. Wade. Why? Because it's been the law of the land, so-called, even though that's not how laws are written. That's a confusion of the three separate distinct branches of government in our system. But that was the line Roe v. Wade has been the law of the land since 1973. There's no sense changing it now. So in some sense, conservatives, after a fashion, would say, well, we're conserving the status quo because this has been the law since 1973. And now here we are 50 years later, and it's been overturned. And that doesn't solve everything. But in the states where fewer babies, maybe no babies, are being aborted, it certainly makes a difference to those babies. It certainly will make a difference to those states. So also, with regards to so-called marriage equality, which is a farce, it's a mockery of our God. It is a great evil and folly in this country that homosexuality has been elevated and actual marriage has been erased and abolished in some sense. You can just call whatever a marriage, I guess, which is to say, if anything can be a marriage, then nothing really is, which would have suited Karl Marx and Frederick Engels just fine because they were very open about how taking control of the means of production, redistributing property evenly would extend to women. A woman would not be the wife of a man and in some sense belong to him. All of the women of the community would belong to everybody in a communistic society. And actually, oh, by the way, the means of production is not the factory and it's not the farm. The means of production is you and me, or our wives, or our children. And yet you have the David French types, hand-wringing and taking to various periodicals to write these op-eds about how the most conservative thing to do at this point is to affirm and codify Obergefell v. Hodges. Because now that's the status quo. And that's been the status quo for this many years. And the more years there are, that's been the status quo. The more we should say, see, now we have to conserve this, right? No, 
How about we reframe what it means to be a conservative along the lines of what did God actually give us? What did the master entrust to us? What did the master promise us? What did the Lord give to us as an inheritance? What has he commanded? What has he said he will bless? What has he prohibited? We should not be conserving any status quo wherein it is made impossible to obey God, or it's actively penalized to obey God, or it is promoted to disobey God. We should not conserve any such status quo. We just shouldn't. The range of an electric vehicle might seem totally irrelevant to many American Christians' minds today, but it's not. It's not when there's fraud in the mix. There's fraud being perpetrated in you being forced very shortly to buy only this F-150 Lightning. You won't have a choice to buy the gas-powered version. That's fraud. The basis for the claim being then used as justification for a lot of young people to not get married, even if they could afford it, they say, well, I don't want to get married because it wouldn't be responsible. We need to decrease mankind's overall carbon footprint. No, no. Carbon is plant food. Do you have any idea how much carbon trees take out of the atmosphere relative vehicles putting carbon into the atmosphere? Power plants putting carbon into the atmosphere. Do you have any idea how good carbon in the atmosphere is for plants? They eat that stuff up, literally. They breathe in what we breathe out and what our vehicles breathe out, and they breathe out what we as human beings breathe in and what our vehicles breathe in, actually, as a matter of fact. I would draw your attention to an article in the Billings Gazette by Tom Ludy. Two bad legislature bills cost Montana $825,000. Tom Ludy writes for the Billings Gazette this very manipulative, misleading, dishonest piece, in my view, basically making very clear where the Billings Gazette, if you weren't sure before, where the Billings Gazette stands on the political spectrum. Why are these two legislature bills bad? Because they were passed by Republicans and because they were intended to keep power plants that the left and the radical environmentalists want to shut down maintained for years and years to come. When, again, I repeat myself, but the radical left, the environmentalists want to shut these plants down. So you had investors from the West Coast who were not wanting to pay for sufficient maintenance to be done on these power plants to keep them running for years and years. And essentially, you had Montana state legislature saying, nope, you're going to have to. You're going to have to. That was challenged. And the state of Montana is now being told, yep, you got to pay these investors. You got to pay these people back after they're having been forced to make repairs that they didn't want to make. You can't interfere in the market like that. And so the whole thing is being portrayed upside down and inside out because a lot of this is woke corporate investing coming in from outside the state of Montana, buying up 
those institutions and those features and those utilities that are necessary so as to make an example of Montana. If you have people looking at Montana and saying, oh, Montana is this conservative place. Well, maybe I'll just move to Montana. Oh, ho, ho. Nope, they don't want that. Not the Hollywood types who live on the western side of the state. Nope, they do not want that. And the Billings Gazette is very happy to do what the corporate news media does across the country. Spin everything in the favor of Democrats and to make the Republicans look bad, to make conservatives look bad. The con is, this is activism. It's woke corporate investing to say we're going to buy in to the most cost-effective and efficient power generation and then shut it down. We're going to buy it up so we can shut it down because that helps our ESG scores. And if you can make Republicans in the state government look bad in the process, boy, howdy, that's just a bonus, right? But again, again, the thing that has to be understood here is that all across the U.S., you have power plants that are the most cost-effective being taken apart, powered down, made less cost-effective, less productive, and for what? So as to improve the quality of life for all of us and for generations to come, or so as to funnel us into making the decisions that the people at the very top think are good for us to make. Namely, for there to be fewer of us and for us to do what we're told and for us to let them make our decisions for us as to whatever enters their imagination next. Remember how I've talked about behavioral economics and how there is this field of study which says the vast majority of people do not make rational decisions. They don't make the right decisions. And a very small percentage is very scientific and very rational, and we should let them do the thinking. Trust the experts. Follow the evidence. The science is settled. All that kind of stuff. Well, what if it just so happens to be a vanity project? Very highly politically motivated, very self-serving. Well, these guys are very smart, though, you say. Well, how do I... How do I know that they're very smart? How, what, do you, what do you mean, how do I know? Well, they're very, they're very wealthy. Okay. Well, how did they get very wealthy? Well, because they're very smart. Hmm. What if they got very wealthy through fraud and deception and corruption? You know, not all did, right? Not all did. But I'm just saying, what if sometimes you have situations like the one we find ourselves in with... President Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. What about in cases where you have bribes being taken from foreign nationals, threats being made against foreign businessmen if they don't pay up? When you have outright bribes and extortion, and so long as Pops is the vice president or the president of the United States, he can make all of the investigations go away he can make the media coverage, whatever he wants it to be. He can make your charges go away. If you do actually get investigated and there's a potential for charges, he can get that all dialed down to a plea deal. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, like when congressmen and congresswomen and U.S. senators buy stock and sell stock in companies right before they make major decisions that will either help or hurt those same companies that they're buying stock in. You know, 
like when their family members do the same thing and then a lifetime in Congress or in the Senate sees them multi, 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 multi-millionaires. You know, that kind of thing. That, that kind of thing. You know, like when politicians receive huge amounts of money in speaking fees, donations to their campaigns, favorable coverage, timely decisions, and then in exchange, if they get reelected, they give those donors what they paid for. They give them what they wanted. You know, that kind of stuff. When that's been going on for some time now, and then we start talking about what it means for younger Americans to get married at 30 instead of 20, or to have one or two kids when actually they would like to have three or four kids. When we start talking about younger Americans not being able to afford a home, but they're paying 45% on average of their income to rent, and then you add an additional layer of from the church downplaying or else completely ignoring any talk of the economy or else actively supporting big government leftist initiatives or else taking the third way option and saying, hey, it doesn't matter who you vote for. The only person you shouldn't vote for is the somebody who says you should be voting conservative. But otherwise, it doesn't matter. You know, it's They're all equally good options. They're all equally bad options, except for the conservatives, of course. Those guys are jerks. At a certain point, it all adds up to a mismatch with numbers 32, uh, with actually so much of what we've been reading in the Pentateuch to this point. It was not God's design for his people, Israel, to wander in the desert, wander in the wilderness in perpetuity forever and ever. That's not what we're looking forward to in eternity either, by the way. This idea that Reuben and Gad would have homes, they would have houses, they would be able to settle their wives and their children and their livestock in the land was not at all objectionable. The concern was, well, you're going to do that and then you're going to not care about doing your duty. Well, no, 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 let us settle and then we'll go do our duty. Oh, okay, great. And it should be the same. It should be the same for us today, for young people today. It's not an unreasonable ask for young people today to want to own their own home. For young people today to want to be able to afford to get married and have kids. And oh, by the way, for young people today to want to be able to buy a vehicle that is cost-effective and that has a fuel source that is reliable and cost-effective. It's not unreasonable for young people to want to pay less in taxes and to want to be regulated less, to want to be able to save up capital, to start their own businesses and innovate and enjoy the fruits of their own labors. It's not unreasonable or unchristian at all, particularly when you fast forward into the New Testament and you see Paul writing in Thessalonians to aspire to live quiet lives, working with your hands, minding your own affairs. That's very biblical. That's very biblical. And so as a final thought here, I turn my attention to another article from Billings Gazette, Tougher pollution rules could be costly for coal strip. And here again, we've got Tom Ludy leading with coal strip power plant, appearing to be the only coal-fired generator in the country without the common pollution controls needed to clear tougher mercury air toxic standards proposed by federal regulators. 
And what's important here is you understand tougher is supposed to sound good. Federal regulators are supposed to sound serious and objective, like they're the ones trying to protect the public. Common pollution controls is grading on a curve after everybody else has capitulated. Then you come back and you say, oh, well, you, you see, everybody else has given us what we wanted. A little earth and a little water, the Persian ambassador says to the Spartan king. A little earth and water as a sign of tribute. But the impact, the effect, the result is higher electricity prices. And for what? And for what? When this administration has made it very clear that they like transing the kids, in fact, they don't regard you as having your kids, they regard your kids as their kids, actually. When this administration has made very public their promotion of transvestites and homosexuals, in fact, they want to put them at the very front of their movement and their push to trans our whole society, to trans the world, it would seem. When this administration, this political party, the Democrats, have said publicly, on record, we need illegal immigrants because American young people are just not having kids. But then at the same time, they're the ones who locked down the country. They're the ones who pushed the vaccine mandates. They're the ones who are pushing for so-called gender-affirming care, which permanently sterilizes young people to where they'll never be able to have kids. When this administration then turns its attention to electric generation and transportation, they are nothing if not consistent. They're not chiefly concerned with you and I being able to provide for our our families, being able to house our wives and our children, being able to graze our livestock in a good land. They're not chiefly concerned with that. They're chiefly concerned with pursuing a radical Marxist agenda. Nothing belongs to anybody. You will own nothing and be happy. Everything belongs to everybody, but especially to the experts, to the econs, as the behavioral economist would say, to the econs who are, of course, them. Who are their hated enemies? Who are their arch nemeses? Conservatives. Conservatives who want to say that the average Joe, the common man, gets to make his own decisions. Now, are you serious? Are you kidding me? Nah, you wouldn't know what to do with that. Give it to me. But it's evil. It's actually very evil. It's the opposite. It's the antithesis of what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica. Aspire to live quiet lives. Yeah, hey, that sounds very conservative. Working with your hands. Yeah, again, sounds very conservative. That sounds blue collar, in fact. Minding your own affairs. Oh, you mean I have affairs, right? I have I have affairs that I could mind? Well, that sounds very conservative. Minding your own affairs. Hmm. Why? 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 Why does Paul say that? He says it because it's important for you to be dependent on no one. Why is that important? Because when you're dependent on other people, it's not good for you. It's not good for the people you're supposed to be dependable for. They're depending on you and you're depending on somebody else. And that person is predatory or unreliable. It's a domino effect. There's a chain reaction of unreliability and things breaking down. It's a recipe for abuse and neglect. Paul says, so you can be independent. You should work with your hands and you should mind your own business. You should aspire to that. What does that mean to aspire? 
It doesn't mean that you're discontented, unruly. No, no. To aspire to that is the same as Reuben and Gad noticing that, hey, this land would be really good for livestock, and we just happen to have livestock, if you guys haven't noticed. Aspire to means you're going to actually make known what your needs are, what your interests are. You're going to actually ask and petition to get what you need in order to do what you need to do, to be self-sufficient. Walking properly before outsiders is actually the big idea. But if every time you would be self-sufficient, every time you would be independent, every time you would mind your own affairs or aspire to, you're going to have some joker come along and say, oh, no, that's very selfish. That's very carnal. That's very materialistic. Well, what is that? Now, I grant, I grant people can pursue their economic interests in a totally godless way, and that always ends badly. But as Christians, when we're talking amongst Christians, and this is a family discussion, when this is a family meeting to discuss family business, as Christians, we should absolutely be engaging on the economic front. As Christians, we should absolutely be engaging on the political front. When politicians need to be called to repentance for fraud, dishonesty, slander, every kind of evil practice, we should absolutely be talking about politics. When the economic consideration is inseparable from policy decisions, which can and do have moral content and which God's word would speak to if we would listen, does speak to whether or not we listen, then we as Christians must be engaging on these things. Not instead of being focused on evangelism, not instead of training up our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, not instead of loving our wives as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her, but actually as proof that we are concerned about those things. Because walking properly before outsiders, Paul says, is inseparable from aspiring to live a quiet life working with your hands, minding your own affairs, being dependent on no one. Being dependent on no one means you're working and earning and saving and you have a sufficient amount. When others are fraudulently tampering with your capacity to have enough, you have to address that. And if they're sinning thereby, you have to call them to repentance. And if they're just mistaken, you have to correct them unless they are fools or wise in their own eyes, in which case you have to get them out of positions of authority. If we actually do have the ability to elect representatives, we should be arguing for why the fool, the arrogant, the abuser should not be writing the laws, executing the laws, interpreting the laws in our country, in our names. They do it here and then they go abroad and they do it too. So if you care about missions, it should also be very important to you who is representing you with your vote abroad. That should matter a great deal to you. How can you say you care about missions if you don't care about walking properly before outsiders from a domestic policy standpoint or from a foreign policy standpoint? How can you say that that's irrelevant to your testimony as a Christian? You, you can't. You can't. Now, we can debate when walking properly before outsiders is best served, what's reasonable, what's realistic, what does God's word actually say? Let's do talk about those things, but it does matter. It matters immensely. And we need to start acting like it does. We need to start talking and thinking like it does. 
that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. More thoughts on these things to come, I trust. For now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.